Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode three, The Envy of Princes. Last week, we heard about King Bimbisara and how he doubled the size of Magda by marrying his former enemies or by making stable alliances. All that marrying into, into former enemies solved the problems of foreign policy outside the borders, um, making very stable alliances, but it rather brought those problems into the kingdom, in fact, into the palace, because um, through those marriages, King Bimbisara had a bunch of different sons, and those sons, those princes, carried on the squabbles of their mother's lands. Um, they rather loathed one another, and in fact, they rather loathed King Bimbisara. So the wars between Magda and its neighbours outside the borders in Bimbisara's reign became squabbles between princes inside the palace gates. This week, we look at how those struggles cost Bimbisara his kingdom and his life. Then we look at Prince Ajatashatru, who took over as king, and, and two wars that he had to fight as a result of those princely squabbles. King Bimbisara had a number of sons by different wives. Remember, he was married to Kasala Devi, the sister of the powerful neighbour upstream, Kasala. And together they gave birth to a son called Ajatashatru. Now, Ajatashatru is a central figure in our story. One day he's going to be king. That's a name to remember. Bimbisara also had sons by other wives. Um, he was married to Chilana, who was the daughter, daughter of, of the Lachavi chieftain. Right? Remember that republic, that proto-democracy on the other side of the Ganga to the north. And together they had sons called Hala and Vehala. And Bimbisara probably had other sons besides. Remember that in some stories he's supposed to have had 500 wives, so he's probably had quite a lot of sons. If the primary duty of a king is to make babies, Bimbisara went about his duty with gusto. In fact, he did rather too well, and his sons caused him no end of trouble. Anyway, by all accounts, Bimbisara really loved his son, Ajatashatru, to bits. And the story goes that one time Ajatashatru had a boil on his finger. Bimbisara said, OK, come over here, son. Come and sit on my lap. And uh, he looked at the finger and he said, oh, I'm going to suck it better. So he put it in his mouth. And as Bimbisara is putting the, the, the boiled finger in his mouth, the boil burst. And bile and pus kind of exploded all over the inside of the king's mouth. But he didn't take it out of his mouth. He thought to himself, if I take the finger out of my mouth, then my son's going to get scared by the, the sides of all this, this horrible stuff. So the king just kept the finger in his mouth and he sucked and swallowed all of the bile and all of the pus himself. Yuck. Anyway, Ajatashatru grew up in the palace, probably being groomed for future leadership. There's a story, actually, when, of one day when, um, when Bindasara, Bimbasara was meeting with the Buddha and chatting to the Buddha, as he did reasonably often. Uh, and just as he's leaving uh, the Buddha, he says, oh, there's my son, Ajatashatru. I really hope he grows up to be a decent lad. And the Buddha's a thoughtful chap. So he goes up to Ajatashatru, he looks him up and down. And then he tells Ajatashatru this story. Once upon a time, there were two ponds. There was a small pond which was full of fish. And there was a, next to it uh, a great huge pond uh, which was full of lotus flowers, but didn't have any fish in it. 
Well, one summer, the rains didn't come, and the, the sun was very hot. And the small pond started to lose its water, started to evaporate, and the fish started getting crammed into an ever smaller area. Well, a crane was flying overhead, and he saw the small pond and the big pond. And he saw the fish in the small pond, and he came up with a cunning plan. He landed by the small pond, and he said to the fish in there, Hey guys, your pond's getting smaller and smaller. You're going to die soon. You're going to be crammed into such a small space that you won't have enough water to breathe in. What I'm going to do to you, do for you, is I'm going to help you out. Because right next door to you, there's this huge pond covered with um, uh, covered covered with lotus flowers and lotus plants, and, and there's plenty of water in there. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to take you one by one in my beak, and I'm going to. Uh, put you into the big pond and I was going to save your lives. I'm going to save your community. Well, amongst the, the fish in the small pond was a certain crayfish. And the crayfish um, uh, was sceptical of the crane. The crayfish said to the crane, "Yeah, this is ridiculous. I, I, I've only ever heard of cranes wanting to kill and eat fish. I've never heard of a crane wanting to help a fish. And the crane says to the crayfish, yeah, fair enough. You know, I'm... I'm I'm part of a species which normally eats fish, but um, what I'll do for you is I'll, I'll take one of you in my beak and I'll put them into the big pond with the many lotuses just to prove that it's there. And then I'll take them back and, and that fish can tell you that I'm trustworthy. Um, and so the, the crayfish isn't happy this, with this, but the other fish decide this is a good idea and they need to do something. So they nominate this this old fish um, who's, who's a bit blind, but he's treated as a, as kind of a sage in the community. And the old fish uh, gets picked up by the crane in the crane's beak, and the crane flies off. And the crane puts uh, the old sage fish into the big pond, and the, he swims around a bit, and then he, he says, OK, let's go back. And so the, the crane fish picks him up on his beak, and he takes him back to the small pond. And sure enough, you know, the other fish are waiting there, and they ask the, the old sage fish, uh, what happened? And he said, yeah, yeah, it, what the crane said is exactly true. There's this, this other pond with loads of lotuses in it, and he took me there, and it's a lovely place. We should all go with him. So the fish agreed, and the crane uh, went and picked up the first of them, and he flew off. But instead of flying to the other pond with all the lotuses in it, he flew over to a tree that stood halfway between the two ponds, and he put the fish down, and he drove his beak right through the fish, killing it. And then he ate it and scattered the bones there. Then he went back and got the next fish. And again, picked it up from the small pond. But instead of flying to the new pond, went to the tree, killed the fish and ate it. And he went for the next fish and the next and the next, each time eating the fish. Until at last, the only fish left was the crayfish. The crayfish still distrusted the crane. He still thought the crane was up to no good, but he was left on his own now. All of his other friends had gone. He thought, well, let's let's be all, you know, whatever comes, comes. So he went up to the crane, and the crane was about to take him in his beak, but the crayfish says, no, no, don't don't take me in your beak. I'm very slippery. You know, I'm, a, I'm not like a fish. I'm like a shellfish. Right? I'll just slip out of your beak. Let me cling on. I've got really powerful claws. Let me cling on to your neck, crane. And the crane says, sure, okay. And the crane uh, flies off with the crayfish on its, on its neck. And again, instead of going to the, the pond with all of the, all of the lotus uh, plants in it, he, he, 
he lands on a tree in between the two ponds. And the crayfish is like, what, what's going on? Why, why are you landing here? Oh, hang on. What are those bones there, Crane? Crane, what are those? Those are the bones of all my friends. You've eaten all my friends. I've rumbled your, 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 your little game. And the crayfish dug his claws right into the crane's neck. Um, and the crane, in the end, just died from all of the pressure. So that's the story that Buddha told Ajatashatru. And he said, Ajatashatru, there's a lesson in this story for you. And the lesson is that cunning will always be caught out. That sooner or later, any cunning person, no matter how much success they have, sooner or later, they're going to meet their crayfish, their person who's going to bring their doom. It was a lesson uh, Ajatashatru uh, didn't listen to, but probably should have. Now, the Buddha said to have uh, had an evil brother-in-law called Devadatta. Devadatta's uh, got an interesting story. Uh, he used to be uh, part of the Buddhist community of monks, the Sangha, and it said he was a good friend to his brother-in-law. But after a while, Devadatta decided that he had some good ideas of his own, right? Uh, in particular, he, he wanted the rules for the monks to be much stricter. He wanted them to do things like um, uh, sleep under a tree and not under a shelter. Uh, and he thought that, that, that the Buddha should step aside and that his ideas uh, should hold sway and he should rule the Sangha for a bit. Right? The Buddha's time um, is gone, it's my time. That's Devadatta's thought. So he goes and he, he tells the Buddha this and he, he asks the Buddha to step aside. But the Buddha is, is full of scorn for him. He says, I'm not going to trust someone like you, like spittle that should be kind of thrown out of the mouth. He comes back with this, this, this venom. And, and Buddha, in fact, uh, went to tell everyone in the Sangha that Devadatta was, was not to be trusted. He was to be, to be watched out for. Uh, Devadatta is humiliated by this um, and angry, and he leaves, uh, he leaves the Sangha um, with some monks, maybe as many as 500. He's furious with the Buddha. He wants to get rid of him. But he sees that the Buddha is friendly with the, with the king of the land, Bimbisara. And he, and he sees that as long as Bimbisara is king... Buddha is going to uh, be safe and secure. So, uh, so Devadatta decides that he needs to get rid of Bimbisara. And he hatches a plot. Remember back when Bimbisara was 15 years old and his father anointed him king? Well, Bimbisara thought that he'd pass on the favour to his own favourite son, Ajatashatru, after a fashion. So Ajatashatru has been, been a young boy and he's been kind of probably groomed for the leadership. Uh, when he's a young man, his father makes him governor of the newly conquered territory, Unga. Unga remembers a, a territory, it, a Mahajanapad of its own, about the same size of Magda. So you can see how what Bimbisara is thinking here. He's thinking, when I was young, when I was about 15, my father gave me a kingdom the size of Magda. So it's only fair that I'm giving my son Ajatashatru a kingdom the size of Magda. I'm giving him Unga, and I'm letting him be the viceroy of Unga. But Ajatashatru saw things differently, right? To him, Bimbisara was failing in his duty to pass on the crown of Magda. Ajatashatru didn't want to be governor. He didn't want to be viceroy of a province. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to be king of Magda. He wanted it all. Even worse, once Ajatashatru was ruling under his province, King Bimbisara started to criticise him for things he was doing wrong. 
in his own province. Bimbisara said to his son, Look, you're letting those stores be burnt down, and, and you're not running the treasury correctly. Well, at this point, Devadatta comes onto the scene, and he sees a situation much like his own. He sees Ajitasatru as the person who wants to be king, but hasn't been allowed to be, just as Devadatta himself had wanted to rule the Sangha, but hadn't been allowed to. So he goes to Ajitasatru, and he starts to whisper in his ear. He starts to whisper, look, you can't treat kings like this. Right? Bim, you are a king, and, and Bimbisaru is, is lecturing you. You cannot allow this. Well, sooner or later, Ajitashatru is convinced. And together, he and Devadatta arrange a palace coup. They manage to get Bimbisara taken away and put into a prison, a seven-sided prison on the edges of the capital city. Well... The stories say that it had seven sides. Uh, there's a ruin in, in, in the capital city in, in Rajagrihi called Bimbisara's prison, and it seems like it's got four sides to me. In any case, outside of this prison, they placed an army of the four corps, infantry, archers, cavalry, and elephants. Uh, these, of course, are, are parts of the ancient Indian army, and also pieces in early chess games. So Bimbisara is languishing in jail, but Ajatashatra is not happy. He's rather jumpy, because the people still love his father, and they're just scared of him for now. But sooner or later, they're going to rebel, rebel against him and free his father. So Ajatashatru just wants to kill Bimbisara. But Devadatta tells him, no, no, you can't just put a sword through your father. It's not clear what Devadatta's thinking here. Perhaps it's just some sort of superstition, or perhaps uh, it's fear that this would make the king Bimbisara a martyr. So what they decided to do instead was uh, to starve Bimbisara to death. So Ajitashatru went out of the city and went to the prison and he, he went to the guards and he said, listen, you've got to stop feeding my father. And more than that, make sure that no one else visits him with any food. But it wasn't so simple. Remember that Ajitashatru's mother was Kushala Devi, or she is in my version of the story. Kushala Devi passionately loved her husband, was devoted to her husband, and was outraged at her son's actions. And she was a, a, a very smart woman, so she went and quickly made, had made some earrings and anklets. And they were made specially so that they were hollow, and they had hinges that you could open and you could put things in. So she placed barley paste inside the earrings, and she filled the anklets with grape juice and water. Then she went out of the city and up to the prison gates and asked to see her husband. And the guard said, no, 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 you can't come in. And she said, how dare you? I'm the queen. So they checked her for food and drink. They didn't notice the kind of sloshing earrings and the anklets. They couldn't find any food on her, so they let her in. She went in, she opened up the jewellery, and the king Bimbisara drunk the juices inside, and he managed to stay alive. Weeks went by this way with... Um, Kushala Devi visiting her husband in jail. And Ajitashatru asked the prison guards whether his father was still alive. And they told him, yeah, he is. And Ajitashatru became very angry and he started shouting, look, why are you letting food in? I ordered you not to. And the guards said, no, 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 we, we haven't fed him and we haven't let any food in. In fact, there's only one person who we've let in at all, and that's your mother. And she didn't have any food on her. 
Uh, Archbishop Chartreux is a, a crafty fellow. Uh, he sent a spy to his mother's house and he soon worked out what was going on. So he went to the guards and he issued a new order. He said, look, no one's allowed in with any food or any jewellery. Well, the next day the queen goes down to the prison um, and tries to get in, but the guards say, no, no, there's a new rule. There's a new rule. You're not allowed in um, with any jewellery. So she went home and she hatched another plan. This time... She covered her skin, not with makeup, but with flour mixed with ghee and honey. And she washed her hair again and again until in, in wine until her hair became sticky and, and retained the wine. Then she went to the prison again and she said, let me in. And the guards could see, well, she's kind of dolled up, she's got her makeup on, but they couldn't see any food or jewellery, so they let her in. And Bimbasara, in what, what must have been one of the strangest meals a starving man has ever had, uh, licked the flour from her body and, and sucked the wine from her hair. And that's how he lived. More weeks passed and, and she visited every day. And when Bimbisara still didn't die, Ajata Shatru grew furious. He banned all visitors from coming to see Bimbisara. But Bimbisara's prison had a window and through it he saw the Buddha wandering about the city. And Bimba understood, Bimbisara understood that if he could see the Buddha every day, then that would allow him to meditate and it would sustain him even without food. So the king lived on. Ajita Shatru must have been steaming, he must have been furious. He found out that his father had been watching the Buddha. He worked out what must have happened. So he said to the guards, go to the king Bimbasara, get a, get a razor and slash open the soles of his foot. Then pull the skin up, taut, and sew it back together again so he's got ridges on his feet. That way he won't be able to walk to the window and he won't be able to see the Buddha. So the guards went and they slashed his feet open and they sewed it back up and Bimbisara began to starve. Meanwhile, Ajata Shatru wasn't starving. He was feasting up at the palace. And by this time he had his own young son who was crawling around on the table. And his mother was at the table too, but she was silent and filled with a, a, a deadly rage. At one point his, his son's crawling around and his son urinates and it goes all over the king's food. But Ajata Shatru refuses to get new food. He, he simply carries on eating the kind of wee-drenched meal. Right? And he finishes it. And he turns to his mother and he says, Look, I am the person who, above all, values family the most. See, I didn't even care that my son urinated on my food. I ate it anyway. And his mother looks up and replies, Yes, you, know, you do value for your family. But I know of someone who values his family even more. She says, there was once a man whose son had a boil. So he went to kiss the pain away. And while the father was doing it, the boil burst in his mouth. But the father refused to spit out the pus, just in case the son got scared. And uh, Ajit Sartre says, wow, that, that's impressive stuff. Who was that? And she turns to him and says, that was your father. And you were the son. And at that moment, Ajata Shatru cries out in horror, for he realised what he's doing. All the thoughts of keeping the crown and the power were gone, and he just wanted nothing more than to release his father and repay his debt. So immediately he stood up and he cried, release him, release him. He picked up an axe and headed out of the palace, down through the city, towards the jail where his father was, to cut his bonds. And as he went, news spread throughout the city of what had happened. And the cry went up, the king's being released, the king's being released. The townsfolk were ecstatic, and they, they followed behind Ajita Shatru, banging pots and pans in celebration. In the prison, 
On his prison bed, Bimbisara heard the bangs, and he heard them grow louder and louder. And after all that he had suffered at his son's hands, he could not imagine that this could possibly be good news. He thought to himself, my son has no compassion, no guilt. What will he do to me next? I can't bear it. So he flung himself from his bed, and weak as he was, he, he, he died from the impact. So that when Ajita Shatru opened the prison door to come and release his father, he saw his father there, lying dead on the floor. And Ajita Shatru, seeing what he had done, fainted and fell over his father's body. So that story is in, in both the Buddhist and Jain texts, though there are dozens of versions. And the texts then say that Ajatashatru felt so guilty that he developed boils which couldn't be cured and that eventually confessed his crimes to the Buddha. Meanwhile, his mother, Kushala Devi, died with grief. Bimasara had reigned 52 years and had been irreplaceable. That's how the stories go, and they paint Ajatashatru in a pretty bad light. But it ain't necessarily so. If you remember, uh, Bimbisara was such a, a glorious and wonderful king that both the Buddhists and the Jains claimed him as one of their own. Right? The Buddhist texts claim he's Buddhist and the Jain texts claim he's Jain. Bimbisara was just such a cool dude, everyone wanted him in their gang. Well, it's kind of the same with Ajitashatru, right? Both Buddhist and Jain texts claim him as one of their own, just like Bimbisara. But in the Buddhist text, Ajahnasatru is a convert. He's a bad man made good by the Buddha's influence. In fact, they say that after Bimbisara died, Ajahnasatru begged for forgiveness from the Buddha. His doctor, his personal physician, persuaded him to actually go and see the Buddha in person. And Ajahnasatru agreed, wrecked with remorse. So he went with the doctor that night. The full moon was out. And they were travelling to the mango grove where the, where the Buddha and his huge band of followers were resting. But as they got closer, Ajitashatru got more and more shifty. Because he's travelling close to a huge band of, of people and he's expecting to hear the noises of people kind of moving around, kind of uh, making noise. But he hears nothing, no human noise. And he turns to his physician, physician and he says, look, you're leading me into a trap. But they go on. And then Ajitashatru sees the Buddha and he says to him, I wish I'd had even half the, the control over my men that you do over yours, that you can keep them absolutely silent in this way. And then Ajitashatru falls at the Buddha's feet uh, and, and pays his respects and asks for forgiveness. So according to the Buddhist texts, by the end of his life, Ajitashatru is a devout follower of the Buddha and in fact is one of the people who takes parts of the Buddha's body uh, back and, and buries and venerates them in the capital. The Jain texts are kinder to, to the young Ajitashatru. Uh, for example, the Buddhist texts have him outright murdering his father. The Jain texts uh, have him imprison his father, who, who dies to, due to that misunderstanding, just as in our version of the story above. So the stories say, say that Ajitashatru murdered his father, uh, or, or let his father die, and took over the throne. And not only that, the stories also tell us that the same thing happened to Ajitashatru himself. His son also killed him and took over the throne. And then it happened again to that son. And again, and again, we had a chain of princes, each murdering their father and taking over the throne of Magda. How plausible is all of this? Well, 
it's not altogether implausible, I think, because you can look at uh, cases like the Mughals, emperors much later in Indian history, where we have a succession of, of people murdering all their brothers to get to the throne. And it happens with such regularity that it almost seems like a sort of ascension ritual. Um, so perhaps we could have chains or, or, or power transfer which do involve bloodshed and are quite stable and regular. Um, and also I think we should have some confidence that Bimbisara met with a grisly end. After all, all the texts agree on that. Nevertheless, what I've told you is a story, a legend. In fact, there are uh, many, many different versions of the story, and they all differ slightly in the details, and I've taken a kind of hodgepodge of the bits of the stories that I liked and put it together. There's going to be more solid history in future episodes, I promise. But for now, a few more stories. This is the story of the War of the Bath Powder. Remember where Magda is, situated just downstream from this huge and powerful state called Kasala. And at the moment they're at peace with Kasala because King Bimbisara had married into the, the king of Kasala's family, had married the king of Kasala's sister. And she was the woman who gave birth to Ajitasatru. And she was also the woman who died out of grief when she found out what her son had done to her husband, when she saw how Bimbisara had died. She herself dies with grief. Well, King Prasenajit up in Kasala, hears news of what happened, hears news of what Ajitashatru did, and he is furious. He's itching for a fight. He, he's absolutely aghast at this Ajitashatru character. So what he does is he says, right, all that income that went with Kasala Devi, my sister, all of, all of that stuff that went with her dowry, I'm taking all of that back. I'm no longer giving you any money from the villages that went with her dowry. Right? She's dead now. Right? You've effectively killed her and you killed her husband. You're not getting any of that stuff. Ajitashatru becomes um, absolutely furious about this too. Right? Uh, he's a kind of petty man when it comes to the belongings of his dead mother and his dead father. So war is inevitable. Ajitashatru strikes first. He's got the smaller army, but he's got the element of surprise. And he forces Prasenajit and his army up into the mountains, up towards their capital, towards their homelands. But Prasenajit isn't beaten. He regroups his army up in the mountains. And when he's ready, he storms down again with his army onto the plains. And in a great battle between the, the Kushalan and the Magdan armies, Kushala has the more powerful force. And the Magdan army flees. But Ajitashatru doesn't flee fast enough. He's left behind and he's captured alive. Now we've said before that Prasenajit is actually a pretty decent fellow. And he's about to show what sort of character he is. Because he looks at Ajitashatru and he thinks, hey, that's my nephew. And he decides he's going to release Ajitashatru. Maybe Prasenajit was also thinking quite tactically. Maybe he wasn't yet ready to take on Magda or didn't want to gain the extra territory. In any case, he releases Ajitashatru and in fact allows him to take uh, the, the money from the dowry, the, the money from the villages, uh, which had been the, the supposed cause of the whole war. Even more, Prasenajit allows Ajitashatru to marry his daughter, Vajira, uh, which of course means that Ajitashatru is marrying his first cousin, which is a little bit off, but hey. And Prasenajit does all of this just in return for Ajitashatru's assurance that he won't ever try to invade Kasala again. 
Now I know what you're thinking. You're going to be expecting Ajitashatru to be his usual cunning self and turn back on his word and invade Kasala at the first chance he has. But in fact, Ajitashatru doesn't. He, he comes to love and respect his uncle and he never again uh, attacks uh, Kasala. In fact, much later on, um, Prasenajit has a, has a crisis in his own kingdom. Prasenajit's got a son himself called uh, Vitudaba who wants to take over the kingdom of Kasala early, just like Ajitashatru wanted to take over Magda early. Um, and, and so with his son kind of pushing at the palace gates, Prasenajit goes to the Buddha and asks him, what should I do? But while he's away on the journey to visit the Buddha, his son takes over the kingdom and he turns the people against him. So Prasenajit now has uh, lost his army, he's lost his palace, and he's lost the friendship of his own people. He's got no choice to flee, so he runs as fast as he can straight to his nephew's house, straight to the capital of Magda. He, he's going to take refuge in his newfound friend, Ajetashatru. And so he races all the way from Kusala downstream towards uh, Magda, towards Rajagrihi, the capital. And he, he reaches the doors of Rajagrihi and he's exhausted. And Ajitashatru hears that he's at the gates of the city and he runs down to meet him. But Prasenajit had already collapsed and died out of exhaustion and worry. The moral of this story is that if you are related to Ajitashatru, do not, please, for any reason, allow him to run towards you and open a door. You will die. In any case. Ajitashatru gave, gave the king Prasenajit a state funeral um, and then promptly carried on normal diplomatic relations uh, with his murderer, uh, the son and the new king of Kusala. Ajitashatru now turns his eye northwards towards the Vrigi and he decides that he wants to conquer them. Remember the Vrigi were that, were that proto-democracy or that confederation of proto-democratic republics on the north side of the Ganga, just the other side of the river. And they are thought by pretty much everyone to be militarily invincible. Right? They're democracies, so the, their people are going to fight for their own lands, lands they rule. Right? They don't have to rely on a mercenary army or a professional army. They have true amateurs in their, in their, in their, in their ranks, and so they can't be beaten by military force. That's the conventional wisdom. But why would Ajatasatru want to take on such a formidable target? There are quite a few stories about this, and my favourites from the Jain tradition. It goes like this. Ajatasatru had some stepbrothers called Hala and Vehala. Hala and Vehala were the children of Bimbisara and a princess from Vrijji. And when they were younger, Bimbisara quite liked these stepsons, Hala and Vihala, and he gave them two great gifts. The first was a very special elephant named Sayanaga. And Sayanaga was an elephant uh, who could sprinkle water on the women of the court with his trunk. Uh, uh, Sayanaga means sprinkler or something like that. And Bimbisara also gave these sons a necklace of 18 perfect pearls. Well... Now Ajitashatru was king and Bimbisara was dead, and Ajitashatru wanted the gifts back. He wanted the pearls for his wife and the elephant for his court. But the princes refused. They'd been given these gifts fair and square. 
and seeing that Adityashatru could be pretty ruthless, they fled on the back of the elephant wearing the pearls up to the capital of Vrigi, um, Veshali. Right, this is the, 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 the city that their mother came from, and it's a beautiful place to live. Right? It's got these tall, elegant houses and these beautiful courtyards with lotus ponds. So it's a good place to go and flee to, and they flee up there. But Adityashatru is a furious chap. Um, he's very protective over stuff that his mother and father owned, and he prepares to invade the Vrigi. Well, that's the story from the Jain text. The Buddhist texts have got a different story. They say there was a diamond mine that was shared between the Lacharis and the Magda right on the border, uh, and both were supposed to get 50% of the diamonds. But the Lacharis cheated, and they carried away Adityashatru's share, uh, and that's why he wanted to invade. Because it's the Buddhist texts, um, and Adityashatru's uh, kind of not yet fully a disciple of Buddha, uh, this whole deal uh, is largely Adityashatru's fault. He's been too lazy to pick up the diamonds, and that's why the Lacharis feel that they can just take it away. Another plausible reason uh, for Adityashatru to want to invade the Vrigi is that he wanted to expand. And if you look at the options, he's not got much left. There's the impenetrable forest, forest to his south. Upstream, there's Kasala, but he's made peace with Kasala now, and he can't invade them. Downstream is Unga, but that's already part of Magda. His father conquered that. So Vrigi is pretty much the only way to go. Anyway, Ajitasatru, for whatever reason, wants to invade this invincible republic, and he needs a way to do it. And he has an advisor called Vasakara, which means rainmaker. And Adityasatru sends Vasakara off to the Buddha and to, to ask him for advice. So Vasakara climbs up to the Buddha, uh, the, where the Buddha's teaching on, on Vulture Peak. And he greets the Buddha and he sits down next to him. And after the Buddha's finished speaking, the rainmaker, Vasakara, asks Buddha, how are we going to beat the Vrigi? Right? How could anyone uh, beat the Vrigi? And the Buddha replies that, you know, so long as they continue to meet in their assemblies, so, so long as they could keep to their traditions, no king could ever beat the Vrigi. They're absolutely invincible. Well, this gave the rainmaker an idea, and he climbs down the mountain again, back to the capital city, and he starts to plot with Ajatashatru. Pretty soon after that, the rainmaker is sent off to the banks of the Ganga to a little village called Hataligrama. And he fortifies uh, this area. He starts, in fact, building a huge fort. And then he starts building giant capital, catapults called Mahashila Kantaka. Um, and he also builds armoured chariots called Rathamashila. Uh, they've got blades on their wheels and they've got uh, a covering to shelter the charioteer from arrows. So he starts building the instruments of war in this huge fort, this huge base on the banks of the Ganga, just opposite Vrigi territory. And when that's done and it's all underway, the rainmaker crosses the river and he runs as fast as he can to the Vrigian capital, Vishali. And he's beating at the door of Vishali. And they say, what are you doing here? You're the king's right-hand man. And he says, do you know what kind of character Adityashatru is? He, he, he's after my blood now. He's, trying, he's killed everyone. He's after me now. And I've barely escaped with my life. Well, that kind of probably sounds quite plausible to the people of Vishali. So they let him in and they allow him to live there. And for three long years, he lives there and he starts to become a figure in the local political scene. He starts to you know, make friends and make political ties. Uh, and pretty soon he's starting to spread a bit of gossip. 
bit of bit of lies, a bit of dissent amongst the different families of the Frigi. Well, after three years of stirring up the pot, the Vrigi were well and truly at each other's throats. And, and, you know, the question of wanting to meet in an assembly to make a vote was completely out of the question, right? The proto-democracy had fallen apart. Well, the Rainmaker knew, now is the time. So he sent a message secretly to Ajitashatru. And Ajitashatru, on, on, on receiving the message, took his army from the new fort on the banks of the Ganges, from Pataliputra. And he took the new giant catapults, the new armoured chariots, and he dro drove them right up to Vaishali and attacked Vaishali. And the Vrigi were too much at each other's throats to defend it. They argued amongst themselves and said, look, you're the stronger one, you go and fight him. I'm going to stay here where it's safe. And pretty soon, Ajitashatru had uh, conquered Vaishali. Actually, the war took quite a bit of time, um, several years, um, but sooner or later he managed to get into Vaishali and he massacres his stepbrothers and pretty much anyone else he could find. And he takes control of Vrigi territory. So Ajitashatru, despite his impulsive nature, has done quite a good job of being a king. He's conquered the seemingly invincible enemy on his doorstep, and he's eliminated rival contenders for his throne. He ruled quite a while after that, about 18 years in total. Every week I'm going to read a bit from the original source material. This week it's from the Buddhist collection of tales, the Jataka. This story was told by the master while living in the bamboo grove. It's a story about Prince Adyashasatu. At the time of his conception, there arose in his mother, the daughter of the king of Kasala, a chronic longing to drink blood from the right knee of King Bimbisara, her husband. She was questioned by her attendant ladies and she told them about it. And the king heard about it, and so he called his astrologers and said, The king is possessed, the queen is possessed of such and such a longing. What will be the issue of it? And the astrologer said, The child conceived in the womb of the queen will kill you and seize your kingdom. Huh. If my son, said the king, should kill me and seize my kingdom, what is the harm of it? And then he had his right knee opened with a sword, and letting the blood fall into a golden dish, gave it to the queen to drink. But she thought, if the son that is born of me should kill his father, what care I for him? And endeavoured to bring about a miscarriage. The king, hearing of it, called her to him and said, My dear, it is said my son will slay me and seize my kingdom, but I am not exempt from old age and death. Suffer me to behold the face of my child. Henceforth, act not after this manner. So don't try and cause a miscarriage. But still she went to the garden and acted as before. And the king, on hearing of it, forbade her visits to the garden, and when she had gone her full time, she gave birth to a son. On his naming day, because he had been his father's enemy while still unborn, they called him Prince Ajatasattu, which means without enemies. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks again to my friend Cam Chadder for the music. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.